It's Tuesday, February 24th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Stock Advisor Canada, Taylor Muckerman, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. Happy Tuesday, gents. Happy Tuesday. Indeed. What's your mug over there? You were you were you were eyeing my Sugar Shack mug. You no, just got, you got the big old Starbucks. I don't mug. know what this says. I just found it at Fool HQ. <laughs> oh really? Just, so yeah. you just kind of go in there and boom, grab. Well, I used to have a mug that I used, and then, like I was telling you, watch out for the cleaning crew because they'll put it. In, they'll put it in the dishwasher, and yeah. you might never see it. That's again. it. See, I don't. I just go for the little generic. Our, our little house white mugs that are up there. I don't bring anything that I'm close to because I know it's just gonna yeah. grow legs and walk away. Yeah, I got I got lock take, that in your filing <laughs> I, got, uh, I had an impulse buy at Sugar Shack, the fabulous new donut place in Alexandria, and uh, my impulse buy was a Sugar Shack mug. So. Which now apparently I need to keep close watch on. Sand, course, sands so. donut though, I got <laughs> to really applaud your little... willpower there. You go there, you get the yeah. mug, but no donut. I mean, uh, that's wow. Now I have to admit that I bought donuts, but they're, uh. they're, they're up on the fifth floor. Uh. So uh, we got more earnings. We've got. Uh, we're going to get into solar energy. We're going to talk education. We'll dip into the mailbag, but let's start with housing, because Home Depot is hitting a new all-time high after fourth quarter profit and revenue came in higher than expected. How good was the quarter, Jason? So I sent a tweet out earlier. I said that Home Depot is the Walmart of my kids' generation, and I stand by that. Like I think that, you know, Home Depot has has set a position in this market as as the outright leader, uh, tremendous retail presence, and you know, if you look over the past ten years, five years, doesn't matter. The the disparity between the two stocks is phenomenal. You know, Walmart is is done. You know, mediocre. It's trailing the market. Home Depot is is just flying. Five years, the stock's up over two hundred sixty percent. And really, honestly, I expect that to continue for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, it makes a lot of sense there. You see this big, massive disruption in traditional retail, right? And so Walmart, we we talk about how they're constantly going up against. Uh, you know entities like Amazon.com and everyone else under the sun and trying to figure out this new sort of retail space. Home Depot benefits from being differentiated in that they do, to a degree, require almost the physical presence. Uh, typically, the home the purchase from Home Depot, uh, unless you're you know replacing something, uh, a lot of times you're you're going in there to sort of see what they have, uh, see what fits. Whatever it may be, I mean, it, it almost demands that you go to the store in many cases, and and it's not to say that in every case that's actually the case. And so they are building out a very robust e-commerce business, uh, which incidentally is is bringing a lot of people there. They'll order online and pick it up in store. I think uh, this past quarter there were uh, about forty percent of those online orders were actually pick up in store. So that that definitely uh, you know helps them leverage that physical presence as well. And um, and so I think you know a number of fronts. This this is a company that's being very well managed. Uh, they continue to buy back shares, which is returning value to shareholders. They're growing the dividend, which is returning value to shareholders. Uh, you look at the share account down um, like twenty three percent since two thousand and ten, which is a lot, you know. And and they're going to continue to do that with a new reauthorization there. So just a lot of things going really well for this company. Their scale gives them a better margin structure over lows, and and I think they're going to continue to exploit that over time. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Lowe's because there was a time in the not too distant past when Lowe's was the better performer as a business and as a stock. You touched on the management, and it, 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 it um, it's easy to forget that part of the struggle that Home Depot had for a while was the leadership at the top, Bob, Bob Nardelli, mm-hmm. who just I, I think uh, our colleague Joe Mager 
who because it's an Atlanta-based company. It is. And I think when Nardelli left the company, I I think Joe Mager wanted to throw a parade. He was like so thrilled. <laughs> That Nardelli was gone, and it just shows that you know when you do have the right management in place, it, it can lead to good things. But Taylor, we were talking earlier. It's it's good to see. Obviously, if if you're a Home Depot shareholder, um, some of the big gainers today, some of the top gainers in the S and P 500 are housing related stocks. Lowe's is getting a lift, possibly just because it's in the same business mm-hmm. as Home Depot, but also Dr. Horton, Lennar, and this comes against the backdrop of. Maybe disappointment is the the best word to describe what's gone on in housing over the last I'm going to say six months or so, where you just you see some of the numbers that come out related to housing starts and existing home sales and you know lumber prices and that sort of thing, and it's just sort of like it's at a minimum it's not encouraging and and maybe at worst it's disappointing. So I I don't know if this is the signal of housing turning the corner or it's just Home Depot really performing well. Well, I think when you see home prices are still rising, they're slowing on the growth side. But and you, like you mentioned, construction and new home sales are are a little bit lower on the growth side. But that just means people are staying in their homes and maybe doing some of the work themselves, which I think bodes better for a Home Depot or a Lowe's because you're getting those individuals coming in, maybe buying higher margin products because they're not buying in bulk like a like a contractor would. So maybe that's helping out a little bit. Um, and since housing prices are still rising, uh, people might have a little bit more disposable income or believe that they do because their equity values are higher. But when I see uh, people worried about new construction and, and new home sales, it doesn't worry me as much because maybe those companies are, are pulling back on that because they realize what happened just a few years ago. That bubble got out of control. People couldn't stop building homes. And so maybe now there's a little bit more of a tempered mindset, which could could make this housing run last a few years longer than it than it normally should under the the, the notion where people are just going to build to try and outbuild the next competitor. Um, but the rental market is still thriving. Rents have been increasing at like twice the rate, wage rate over the last decade or so. Um, so maybe that's hurting people buying a new home because they're paying so much for rent they haven't been able to save enough. But I know in Arlington and DC, most of the new things, new properties that are being built are for lease only. So that's also hurting sales, but that money is still flowing into the housing market. And when you think about what this winter weather is doing to so many <laughs> homes, yeah. you have to believe that Home Depot and Lowe's are probably looking at, at a minimum, a pretty good spring. New roofs, new heaters. I I mean, yeah, yeah, they're looking their shops. I mean, this is something where you know, number one, yeah, the weather obviously it should should bring out some pent up demand here this spring into the summer. Number two, you know, these are companies that traditionally don't face a lot in the in the in the way of currency headwinds that some of these other retailers face. So I mean, the market is obviously privy to that. But but I mean, it's just one more thing that kind of to give maybe investors some some optimism there on on the front there because it'll be interesting to see how really. Uh, those the top lines of both companies here perform, um, you know, in the in the coming quarters. First Solar shares up more than fifteen percent after saying that the company is in advanced talks with Sun Power Corp to form a joint vehicle of pooled solar generation assets. Taylor, what in the hell does that even mean? <laughs> um, so are they merging? Are these two companies merging? They're merging some assets. So basically, they're taking some of these the assets probably under lease, a lot like Solar City has their their yield uh, products that they offer as bonds. But this is going to be a publicly traded entity, um, high yield. They liken it to an MLP in the energy sector um, with those pipelines. And so you're basically um, with these leaseholds that these solar systems are are bringing in. 
they're guaranteed a certain rate of return, so then they can turn around and pay that out to investors. And uh, these are two massive companies in the solar business. Uh, I think SunPower is probably a little bit better um, operator than First Solar, but this is a boost that First Solar needed. It's it's more on the industrial-sized uh, solar plants and facilities, whereas First Solar is more residential, rooftop, commercial. Um, so they need those big projects, and this is obviously well-received. Most uh, the investors were buying into these shares yesterday and today with uh, shares up double-digit percentage, and it's uh, interesting to see two competitors link up like this uh, when they probably could have done it on a smaller scale themselves. Do you have a sense of the timing if this is going to be spun off as its own publicly traded uh, entity? Is that later this year or sometime in 2016? Um, yeah, they, they're still talking or about which little, assets. Or were they a little vague? Because I yeah. mean, this is the talks aren't finalized, but clearly they are far along enough in the talks that they feel comfortable sharing this news. Yeah, I didn't I haven't seen a date, but I would imagine it would be within a year because um, usually you know you see something like this, um, they want to get it out get it out there and, and allow investors to put money to work it behind it um, and take advantage of the yield that they're generating currently. So I would imagine it would be within the calendar year, but I haven't seen anything to to make that a concrete statement. They want to get this done before the price of oil goes back up. <laughs> yeah. Or if Solar City decides to start issuing more bonds or maybe Solar City does something like this in, in a much quicker fashion because they have been an innovator on the side of uh, offering yield out of their solar leases. Speaking of Solar City and their bonds, got an email question from Luke Lynn in Monticello, Illinois. Your crew talks about Solar City all the time as a stock investment, and I'm a shareholder. What do you think about solar bonds, the corporate bonds issued by Solar City that pays up to 4% on your investment? Um, and our colleague Simon Erickson uh, uh, shot me an email with his thoughts. Um, he really likes it. He called it a win win for the company and for the investors. Uh, and I'll just quote directly from Simon's email. For Solar City, it's spreading larger scale awareness of solar and getting others to participate as stakeholders. A 4% yield for a seven year loan is a much lower cost of capital and more shareholder friendly than their traditional options like convertible debt, issuing stock, or tax equity funds. For the investors, a 4% interest rate in today's low yield environment ain't half bad. A great step for Solar Cities uh, in Solar City's overall goal of getting lots of financing at the lowest rates possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the way Simon lays it out, it really does, really does make a lot of sense. And uh, you know, we talk from time to time about how do these companies, whatever industry they're in, how are they raising money? Mm-hmm. And uh, let's face it, not everybody is. A responsible steward of capital. Not everyone is is all that smart, but in today's environment with interest rates, what they are, it seems like I don't want to say that companies have <laughs> limitless options, but it certainly seems like they have a lot more options than before. They have a, a lot of good ones, and I mean, we even saw Priceline this morning um, release an 8K saying that they're going to be uh, raising some money as well. So I mean, you look at these companies that have this just tremendous. Uh, market opportunity in front, and and they are market leaders. Uh, you have to be encouraged when you see them taking advantage of this because they do realize that it's historically very low cost of capital. Uh, Priceline has a very great track record of of, of uh, you know return on that investment. I imagine we'll see the same thing out of you know companies like Solar City as as they try to sort of build up this still very nascent uh, industry. And they're they're not issuing shares and diluting shareholders, so that's yeah. obviously good for equity holders. And um, like Simon said, it's cheaper capital because what Solar City is doing is they're they're installing these solar panels for free for the most part on on these residential uh, homes, 
and then just collecting the monthly and annual yields and for 20 to 30 years. So they need that upfront capital, which is what the bond sales gives them, and then they're able to distribute that while keeping some of it themselves to reinvest in the business. Is, is there a way to quantify the market opportunity, whether it's Solar City or, or First Solar, or anyone in this space, is there a way to quantify the market opportunity in residential versus commercial? Because off the top of my head, and I say this as someone who who knows almost nothing about it, it would just seem like the residential opportunity is much bigger. Well, you look at, I don't know, I have a dollar figure for you, but Solar City uh, wants a million customers by 2018, and they're still under 200,000, but they're growing at a rate beyond what they need to get to that 1 million. So, there's a huge market opportunity just for them that they see um, as as just far as residential customers. So um, the dollar value on this has got to be pretty large because they're already expecting five billion dollars in future payments from their current client base, times five where they're at right now, trying to get to that million. Uh, big opportunity, and they're not even uh, the only player in the business. Let's wrap up with Chegg, which is the company that rents textbooks to students. And Chegg's having a good day. Uh, fourth quarter results were better than expected. Um, shares up big today, Jason. And, yeah. and a new partnership? A new partnership, yeah. So, uh, Chegg, you know, Dan, you know who's, who's a big Chegg guy? Our boy Cakes over 1067. The junkies. The junkies, yeah. He's a big, uh, as a matter of fact, he's, he's I got to give him a little tip of the cap there. He's the one that kind of uh, got this one on my radar. Uh, not even quite a year ago, but I started digging into it. Really like this business a lot. It's a tiny little company, but the market's really excited about two things. Uh, number one, the promise of a 100% digital business by 2017, uh, and as you referred to this this relationship with Ingram, um, which will help them get that done. And back in August, they educational they made, publishing house, right? Exactly. So back in August, they made mention of this relationship they had formed with Ingram, and, and yesterday they really sort of solidified this deal. And now it's a five year relationship where Ingram is really going to help take care of sort of the back-end logistics here, giving Chegg an opportunity to focus on the service side. Uh, but Chegg is, is, you know, they're tapping into a very important customer base in offering, you know, a holistic solution beyond just textbook rentals for students. And, you know, I think when you look at just sort of the the, the, the one-dimensional sort of aspect of textbooks, there's a lot of competition out there. I mean, the first, first thing that comes to mind, obviously, would probably be Amazon.com, Barnes Noble, probably not far behind. Uh, but but Chegg is really building more of a holistic solution. You know, it, it is kind of like the the student social network, so to speak. And so you can go beyond just renting textbooks. I mean, you're talking about getting tutors. You're talking about getting uh, input as to uh, how to to you know get scholarships. How you might want to look at applying for college. It taps into that high school student base in order to to help them sort of get that ball rolling in in um, in, in getting into college and looking at different financial aid options. So just a lot of different. things. Thing this company does to really differentiate itself from just being a textbook provider, and, and I think that's really important because what they've been able to do uh, is benefit from the ne- the network effects of bringing more students in under that Chegg umbrella. Uh, they got a very you know powerful brand, a recognized brand within the student industry, and uh, and so they're going to continue to play out on this. And the idea of going into a fully digital business is really going to flip its capital needs. On its head, uh, it's going to help them become far more profitable, far more quickly. And the market, I think, is uh, is really excited about that today. Uh, and I think they're I think they're right to be. I think when you look at this this company, its leadership, 
Uh, you know, the CEO has, uh, interestingly enough, 21 and 19-year-old daughters, I think he mentioned on the call. And I think that's important, actually, because it keeps him in touch with his target demographic. You know, I mean, he's getting a better idea, sort of a boots-on-the-ground sort of feeling there of, of what students really want and are looking for. And, um, you know, I've mentioned Amazon always is one of the biggest competitors. And, and to me, I, I can't help but feel like this is just – it would make a neat little acquisition, I think, for Amazon, quite honestly, because – it could bring them in. It could bring that whole student demographic in, given the prime student product that Amazon already offers. You know, you're, you're bringing really just you know a whole new generation of, of prime members in there. If you just bring that business in under the Amazon umbrella, let those guys continue to run it, and you incorporate that prime student sort of offering in there, I, I think it could be phenomenal on many fronts. And so it wouldn't shock me to see that. But I think investors have to be encouraged with this quarter and in, in the uh, you know the the next couple of years coming up. Well, I think, and we've talked a little bit about this before, I think anything, any business that is disrupting any aspect of college education, and I know high school is part of it as well, but mainly right. it's college, any business that is disrupting any part of the college education process from a business standpoint, mm-hmm. I, I, I think is worth looking at as an investor because it's just it's too expensive. It's just way too expensive. <laughs> when you look at the numbers, it's pretty phenomenal to see. Like the cost of educational books going back to like 1978 have, has vastly outpaced things like like That's, housing, like and, other books, and medical expenses, <laughs> right. and, and all of these other consumer price index and all this. So you see these costs that just continue to skyrocket for students, and it's and it's it's just truly phenomenal. We hear all the time about this, you know, outrageous, uh, you know, trillion dollars in student debt that we have outstanding now as a nation, and that's obviously going to be a, a big problem. I hear, I, I think here for the for the coming for the coming years, and I think that really what makes Chegg so powerful is what guides their decision making. Their their core value is students first, and so this is what guides the decisions that they make. And I think when you have a company and a management team that is founded on principle like that, when they have something that guides their decision making as as that does. That can be extremely powerful, even if the economics of the situation, the competition, uh, you know, prove prove to be difficult in the early stages. You know, the, these guys, these types of companies are very relentless in trying to change things, and you, and you cannot dismiss them. When I think back on my college education, um, which I greatly enjoyed, college got so much out of that. But there are a couple of classes that I look back on and think I'm not. I'm not sure I retained anything from that class. And this actually came up in conversation with one of my daughters last week. And in the course of conversation, in the course of conversation, I mentioned I was referring to uh, one of my classmates, and I was like, "Oh yeah, we we were in philosophy class together." And I proceeded with whatever I was saying, and she just stared at me and said, "Wait, you you took a philosophy course?" And I said, "Yeah." And she said, "Why did you take a philosophy course?" I said, "Well, it was required." And 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 then I started thinking about it, and I was like, "Yeah, I really don't think I remember anything in that <laughs> class at all." And I, you know, I, it was required, and I took it, and I passed. But yeah, nothing stayed with me. Taylor, one class from college that you look back on and think, "Boy, I know it was well intentioned, probably on the part of this institution, mm-hmm. but I can't recall a single thing I got out of that." Most, I mean, you put a gun in my head. Most classes in college, I got something out of, and I can be specific. See, about I, it. I was, but, a, but the philosophy one is like, nope. I got I don't. nothing out of. Maybe my head wasn't right for my philosophy class, so I could probably <laughs> go along the same lines as that. But um, yeah, I can't. I, 
most of the classes I, I really enjoyed because I had a pretty good uh, system where I was allowed to choose pretty much everything. I wasn't forced into any yeah. kind of class, but um, maybe PE was the most failed. <laughs> it was maybe the most failed class on my campus because the tests were so incredibly hard. Really? Yeah. Tests where did you go to school? UNC Wilmington. The test. I, I, I was envisioning a bunch of Ralph Wiggins just walking around tripping all over themselves. <laughs> no, it was a physical uh, Scantron test. That you had to... uh, wow. What about you, Jason? So I was a little bit of the opposite. Like, I, I was an econ major. I was very close to a double major with philosophy. I actually enjoyed philosophy, but the reason why I enjoyed it was because of the writing and the reading aspect. And I only took one English class. And, and I, I can say, I, I, I don't even recall what that English class was about. I don't even recall one of the books that I read in that English class. Uh, so, so, yeah, I, I, would, I, would, I would say that, that one class would have to be the one that stands out the most. Radio at fool.com is our email address if you have questions about stocks or if you just want to share the one college class that you took that you really can't recall anything that you retain from it. Uh, I want to mention one more time, Motley Fool Stock Advisor, our flagship newsletter service. Run by David and Tom Gardner. You can get 75% off. Just go to marketfoolery.fool.com. That's marketfoolery.fool.com. Jason Moser, Taylor Markman, thanks for being here, guys. Thank you, sir. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 